So let me uh, start off by saying that uh, what I will be talking about today uh, is, um, is not just my work, but is uh, a work that uh, I've been doing with uh, many people, and uh, some of them are listed here. Um, <clears throat> people here at UCL, but also in other places uh, um, around the world. And also, I've been, this is a topic, uh, the one of uh, early childhood development, which is extremely um, fashionable and important. Uh, and so there are lots of people that, uh, that are working on it now. And um, so let me, let me uh, first start by motivating the, um, our interest in, in, in this topic. So there's more and more evidence that what happened to uh, children in early years is critical in shaping the development of that child. And what happens in early years has long-lasting effects on a variety of outcomes in adult lives that varies from social skills and emotional well-being to depression, participation in criminal activities, success, success in school, academic achievement, cognitive development, uh, long-run health outcomes, and uh, earnings and uh, economic well-being. Just to give an example, I could have uh, filled the lecture with examples of these uh, sort of relationships. This is a graph taking from a paper by Jen Curry published last year in the American Economic Review, where uh, the top uh, part of the graph relates uh, uh, an index of cognitive, um, of cognitive deve development uh, uh, to, uh, at age six to earnings of individuals at age 24, 27. And you can see that there's a very strong relationship. Uh, cognitive development, even at age six, as early as age six, is a good predictor. And, the, and you can go even earlier. You can relate birth weight, which is well known to be um, influenced by what, um, what type of nutrition uh, the child gets in, 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 uh, during pregnancy, to earnings 25 years later. So what happens in, early, in the first part of the, of the life cycle it is going to be extremely important. And it's not just cognition that is important. It's where non-cognitive, what we, we call non-cognitive skills um, are also very important and have shown to be important. Many of you might have seen the, um, uh, uh, might know about the marshmallow experiment that was conducted 30 years ago at Stanford. Uh, you know, you find these beautiful uh, videos on YouTube where you see these uh, this, uh, children that were uh, uh, given a marshmallow, and if they were willing to wait for 10 minutes, they were given a second one. And so um, it, it turned out that uh, the behavior of those children aged three to four, in terms of their ability to self-control, uh, was a very good predictor uh, of their academic achievement and eventually of their earnings in adult life. This is a very impressive uh, uh, piece of evidence. We also know that uh, cognitive and non-cognitive skills develop at different points in time. And moreover, they are affected uh, to a very large extent by the environment where individuals live. In a way, there, I think there is a growing consensus that the old debate about na nature versus nurture is, uh, is quite obsolete. And even, uh, even genes find different uh, ways to express themselves uh, depending on the environment where they, um, uh, they can do that. We also know that uh, the, um, uh, there, is a, there are important interactions between 
cognitive and non-cognitive skills uh, in terms of the, uh, um, uh, during the childhood. And as the skills they develop, they interact in important ways with each other. Now, all this is uh, consistent with uh, a bunch of uh, recent neurological research that indicates that the brain uh, develops very early in life. Moreover, different parts of the brain uh, that control different functions develop at different points in time. And uh, the development, development of the brain is a function of the quality and range of early experiences interactions. And this is a graph that shows the, uh, uh, how different parts, uh, um, different functions, for instance, seeing and hearing develops in the, in the very early months, while uh, uh, lang uh, receptive language and speech develops later. And of course, if the early functions have developed uh, well, it is easier for uh, functions that develop later to grow in an efficient way. Now, if this is true for everybody, this uh, type of uh, um, problems are surely extremely important in developing countries where risk factors that they might affect negatively the development of children and therefore have an influence for the rest of their lives are particularly salient. According to uh, a, 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 an important set of papers published in The Lancet in, in 2007, there are about 200 million children around the world that are at risk of not developing, developing their full potential. And here is a map about where these children are located. And the, developing, uh, the, the, the poor countries are, are where you can find them. In these countries, there are many risk factors that might affect the development of children. They range from uh, 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 nutrition and biofactors, and the nutrition in, during pregnancy and early childhood, iron deficiency, iodine deficiency, and in general, uh, deficits in uh, various micronutrients. Uh, in many of these countries, uh, infectious diseases have, uh, and parasites are very prevalent. Uh, there are other environmental factors like the lack of clean water hygiene. Uh, in general, health conditions might be problematic. And there are psychosocial factors. Uh, when you live in poverty, you're unlikely to be stimulated. Um, parents might be thinking about other uh, pressing issues like survivor, survival, and therefore might uh, give less care to children, there is the violence, there is maternal depression. These are all risk factors that have been shown to have a negative impact on the development of children. So poverty is associated with, uh, with the lack of development. And the effect of poverty uh, on child development are visible and they are dramatic. And we know that you know, these lags that are accumulating in early years, as I said, uh, they will be difficult to, um, to fill in, in, in later years. This is some evidence uh, from uh, Ecuador where, they develop, where the, um, <clears throat> the development in the receptive languages, language skills of a set of children uh, is uh, plotted over their age, and the children are divided according to their, uh, the wealth decile um, of, of the family where they live. And so a score of 100, these are scores that are normalized by age. So a score of 100 is the score of a normal child. What do you expect a, a child to develop at a particular age? So normal children should, should grow so to keep their development around 100 as they age. And that's what happens to, the, to children in the fourth decile. 
and pro probably they're not plotted here for, uh, to children living in, uh, in wealthy families. But look what happens to the poorest children, the bottom 10%. At the beginning, at, at 36 months, where this, uh, where, the, where this observation started, they're not particularly delayed. There is a little bit of a delay, but it's not dramatic. By age six or by age seven, uh, they, they fell off the scale. There is a, a three standard deviations gap between the, uh, within the poorest and, and the relatively uh, middle uh, children. This is the fourth desire. This is equivalent to a two and a half years delay in development. These are the children that enter school. So you put a, uh, in, in a classroom with a normal six years old working on a curriculum designed for six years old, a child who has the development in terms of, the, uh, of his or her language skills of a three-year-old. That child is not going to be successful. And, 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 and this is the beginning of a life of um, misery. So this, this, uh, these are uh, really important uh, problems. And it's not just, uh, this is rural Ecuador up in the Andes. We've been uh, with Sally Grant McGregor and, and Gina Madani and others. We have been looking at uh, a sample of Bangladeshi children. These are all poor children. And we show that even among the, those children that are all poor, there are differences in wealth. And uh, you can find differences in uh, the development, cognitive development of those children at very early ages. We can find some differences in uh, at seven months. And by the time the children are, are five um, years of age, those, uh, uh, those differences have, uh, uh, have increased tremendously in terms of the cognitive development. Moreover, which is particularly important, a large fraction, not all of it, but a large fraction of this delay seems to be uh, related to stimulation or in this case, the lack, uh, lack of stimulation. We have measures of, uh, of the uh, quality of the environment and stimulations that they receive. Something similar in Chile. So this is a middle-income country. In work with, that I've been doing with one of our graduate students at UCL, uh, Pamela Jervis, on a sample of Chile, uh, Chilean children, we find that there are important differences in the cognitive development of children and they grow with age. By uh, between six and 24 months of age, uh, is almost 0.4 standard deviations that in, uh, more than doubles by the, uh, for children aged 24 to 16 months. And once uh, again, the, uh, a big chunk of this delay seems to disappear once you control for um, the inputs uh, that par uh, the parents may give in terms of stimulation and in terms of other uh, books, toys, etc that uh, uh, the, a large chunk of this, uh, of this gap um, uh, is, is associated. I'm not saying that it's causal, but there is, seems to be an association there. Early years are therefore very important in the long run. They're affected by, um, by the environment. They're affected by poverty. But just in the same way we see that they can be affected by a variety of risk factors, it means that the outcomes in early years are malleable. And, and the implication is that it might be possible to design interventions that, uh, that can remedy these delays and can affect outcomes in early years and as a consequence have uh, long-run effects. And there is mounting evidence that the, this type of interventions, if well designed, if successful, not only they affect outcomes in early years, but they have uh, long-run effects. 
Let me just mention a few examples. There was a, a few years ago an intervention in, uh, in Guatemala where um, a nutritional supplement reinforced with iron and other micronutrients was supplied in a randomly selected set of villages for two years. And these children were followed for, uh, for over 30 years. Um, now, I don't want to go into the details of this table. We don't have enough time to go this. But just look at the difference in wages between the children that received that treatment uh, between, say, zero and three years, which are the first two rows, and, um, and the children that did not. There is a very strong and significant difference in the wage that they were able to command once they grew up and are 35 years later. Interestingly, the effect is much lower. It's uh, 0.2 rather than 0.6. For the children that received this, uh, this intervention between three and five years, three and, and six years of age. So yes, the earliest, uh, early years um, interventions can be effective in the long run, but have, has to be early. Three years, uh, after three years, it might be already too late. Now this is a this is a a, um, a nutrition intervention in a, in deprived uh, Guatemalan villages. Uh, we can move to Michigan in the U.S. and there was a, a famous uh, experiment that was done in the uh, in the uh, 60s, where a number of high-risk children aged between three and four were assigned to a high-quality preschool program, and then they were followed into uh, adulthood. These were the, the results of this experiment. So the, the blue, the blue um, uh, bars refer to uh, the outcomes for children that received the intervention. The yellow ones are those that did not. So you can find effects you know, many years later on almost anything you look at. Uh, number of uh, percentage of, of, uh, of youth arrested more than five times by age 40. 36% versus 55%. Uh, percentage that earned more than $20,000 at age 40, 60% versus 40%. Uh, graduated from high school, 65 versus 45. Uh, basic achievement at 14, 49 versus 15. Uh, IQ, 60, uh, uh, of more than 90 at age 5, 67 versus 28%. So this, this is an intervention that seems to have been extremely successful. An interesting question is how costly is this intervention? Is it worthwhile? Does it cost a fortune? Well, the cost was, uh, in $2,000, was about $15,000 per year per child. So it seems a fair amount. On the other hand, if you look at the benefits, uh, here is uh, what you save in special education, $7,000. What you make, what the government makes by taxing the increased earnings that these children will earn is $14,000. Um, the welfare savings, the welfare payment savings, another $2,700. And especially the uh, savings in terms of crime and incident of crime can make this program extremely uh, cost effective. Now, stimulation and nutrition interact, and there is evidence of that. In the 1980s, uh, 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 there was a, a, a famous study that was started uh, in Jamaica. And um, Sally Grant and McGregor, who's sitting here in, in, in this room, 
and her team in Kingston, Jamaica, identified 129 children aged between 9 and 24 months, so early. And uh, they developed a structured home visitation curriculum to promote cognitive stimulation as well as mother-child bonds. And the curriculum was delivered by community nurses, uh, nurses' aides, through a one-hour weekly visit to children's homes during 24 months. So it's a fairly intensive, uh, intensive uh, intervention. Now, the stunted children were randomly divided into four groups. Uh, one group received stimulation, another group received nutrition, another group received both, and then there was a control group. And the children were followed at the end of the intervention, at age 7, 8, at age 11, 12, at age 17, 18, and last year uh, at age 22, 23. The results were pretty stunning. This is from the first, uh, from the first observation. You can see here, these were the control children. You can see the delay that they start accumulating relative to the non-stunted children. These are the children that received the supplementation. These are the children that received the stimulation. These are the children that received both. They almost ca catch up. But this is not the end of the story. By age 17, while the, the, the effect of the uh, nutrition intervention has, uh, has uh, uh, faded out, the effect of the stimulation is still there. These are the non-stimulated children. These are the stimulated children. They don't quite make up to all, all the way to the non-stunted children, but you can still have the gap. This is 15 years after the intervention was finished. And this is 22 years after the intervention. This is a very recent study uh, that I don't believe is published, but, you can, uh, but the results are uh, being uh, made available. This is the distribution of earnings in the current job. And you can see that the, the green line are the stimulated children, the, the, the blue density, uh, the orange density are the non-stimulated children. And you can see a shift in terms of earnings. How large is it? Probability of, of being employed uh, 22 years after the end of the intervention is 15 percentage points higher for the stimulated children. Uh, earnings can be as, as much as 50% higher. So these effects are, uh, are amazing. So before I go into what I uh, uh, think is going to be the, um, the center of my lecture, where I want to tell you what we do, let me summarize what we think we have learned. And uh, these first few uh, slides that I showed you were a, a bit of a summary. We learned that development during the first three years sets the stage for long-term development. Human capital is a multidimensional culture that is different dimensions are all important. Both cognitive and non-cognitive skills are important. Nutrition is important to develop, but stimulation is probably even more important and more effective in the long run. The physical and social home environment is central to development of cognitive and non-cognitive skills. And moreover, there are important interactions. Children have developed early on non-cognitive skills like self-restraint, um, ability of um, uh, social communication, um, executive functions of various types, they might be able to better develop cognitive skills later on, for instance, when they go to school. However, there's lots of stuff that we still don't know. We still don't know, uh, we still don't fully understand 
how nutrition affects the development of cognitive and uncognitive skills. And I can give you lots of examples. I've taken uh, two examples. One is uh, about iron and zinc. We know that anemia is bad for young children because uh, iron plays a, seems to be playing an important role in the development of the brain at, uh, uh, during early childhood. There's also some evidence that zinc is protective uh, against a number of diseases. So you think, okay, uh, zinc should also have an effect. Well, uh, there is at least one study that shows that zinc has a negative effect on cognitive development, maybe because it counteracts the, the ability of the body to um, absorb iron. Now, I don't know all this, and uh, the problem is that I'm not the only one not to know this stuff. There is still lots, of, lots that needs to be learned. Uh, iron, uh, so iron seems to be good uh, for children, but uh, we are not sure whether uh, it's a good idea to give iron in areas where malaria is endemic. There, there has been a famous study in Tanzania that showed that uh, it might have very negative effects. So there's still lots that need to be learned even in terms of the biology of, this, uh, of these issues. We still don't know the role played by different inputs and their interactions. How does nutrition interact with stimulation, for instance? We still don't know what determines investment in human capital. That's where economists uh, like myself uh, might have an important role uh, to play. We need to understand what parents actually do. What are the constraints that poor parents face? Are problem, simply problem of resources or there's also information issues, knowledge, beliefs, attitudes, what role do they play? And, more, and importantly, I think, how, how resources allocated within the family is still not completely clear. We have some idea that the mothers are better than fathers uh, in uh, caring about children, but we don't fully understand what determines all this. And what we don't know, we know that it is possible to construct uh, effective intervention. What we need to know is how to construct cost-effective interventions, how to go from efficacy to effectiveness. And this is important because when you go to a politician, you say, look, this is, uh, in the long run, this is going to be very beneficial. We spent $50,000 now. In, the, in 25 years, we'll recuperate $150,000, 1 to 10. That sounds a, a really great investment. Well, unfortunately, most politicians don't have such a long horizon. And they will want to have benefits now or to have really low cost. So it is uh, crucial. Uh, to build uh, interventions that are cost-effective. And in, many develop in the case of the many developing countries, there, there are budgetary issues. The, simply, the money is not there. So what is our research agenda? I th in terms of the work that we've been doing in this area, I think we have two main, uh, two main uh, uh, purposes. One is to try to understand this mechanism, both the formation of cognitive and cognitive skills, and what motivates and what determines the decisions that parent make, parents make about investing in their children. And then we want to identify cost-effective stimulation and nutrition intervention that can be scaled up and sustained. So over the last three years, we have developed a new intervention in Colombia. In collaboration with Sally, we have, we have adapted her Jamaican curriculum that I mentioned earlier. And we are trying to deliver it using community-based resources. So we want to develop a program that can be scaled up. If we do show impacts, we want to be able to go to the Colombian government and say, these are the impacts, and this is how much it costs, and you can afford it, and that for this, this should be uh, scaled up. This research has been financed by a patchwork of uh, organizations and grants. Uh, 
So let me give you a little bit of a background to show you how we try to do this. So in, La in uh, Colombia, like in many other Latin American countries, uh, they uh, build up these uh, conditional cash transfer programs. Uh, the Colombian one is called Familias en Acción, one of the most famous ones, the Mexican one was uh, called Progresa. Um, the idea is quite simple. Uh, they, give, they pay poor people um, if they comply with certain conditions that typically have to do with, the, um, uh, with investment in human capital and in children. So they have to take their children to growth and development checkups in health centers, they have to enroll in to school, they have to have them vaccinated, etc. So these are all um, uh, fashionable now in, throughout Latin America and in many other countries as well. So Familias en Acción in Colombia is now the largest welfare program in that country. So now the beneficiaries of this program, which account for about 20% of the poorest families in Colombia, within a neighborhood or within a village, they elect a representative, which is called the Madre Leader. And so the, the, the mandate of this Madre Leader, which are elected every two years, is to connect with the administration of the program and organize a number of uh, activities. Now, having worked on the evaluation of this particular program, um, one thing that we realized that, uh, at the very early stage is that mother leaders are different. These are women that are very distinct, very distinguishable uh, from the other women in the community for their leadership skills, for their education, for their entrepreneur, uh, they're more entrepreneurial, uh, they're more community networking abilities. And so the idea we have is that these skills can be used. These are smarter women, these are entrepreneurial women and they live in the communities. And we, we might be used those skills. So the idea is to use these human resources available in the communities. And so we, we train and hire the mother leaders so that they deliver the stimulation curriculum that we adapted from the Jamaican curriculum through weekly home visits. Using local resources is not only cheaper, but it can mobilize local communities and spread information on child development. At the same time, the program introduces a new institution and improves knowledge and understanding of child education. Now, to train the mother leaders, we also need to hire and train some psychologists uh, who eventually become supervisors and support staff for the mother leaders. So we have to set up an entire, an entire uh, uh, structure. So this is a, the program, the intervention itself is made of a number of components. I've put some pictures here. So the curriculum, the, when I, the curriculum is extremely well structured. Every week has got its own activity. This is a page from, uh, from the book, from the curriculum. Uh, so it's uh, specific, so this is month 32, first week. So it's, uh, every week there is a different set of activities and tells what are the games that are supposed to play, what are the activities that are supposed to do, there are instructions. Um, these are the, some of the puzzles we do. The first one on the left is the easiest puzzle. The child simply has to, uh, this comes out, the, the, the round part of the flower has to fill it in. The clown has got a square that comes out, so it's a little bit more difficult. The house is quite difficult because there are all sorts of pieces that uh, we have to put together. So the, as the child grows, uh, you, uh, you make available harder and harder puzzles. We have story cards, so this you know, coffee growing and um, you know, then, then it's put into sacks, it's taken to the market and eventually 
to a nice cup of coffee, the butterfly story. So we, we provide this to the mothers to, and encourage the mothers to interact with the child to, uh, um, to form these bonds, to use words, to use language, to develop uh, skills in the child. We produce some little books. Uh, this is one of the stories. Uh, you know, there is a dirty uh, a shirt that the, the mother uh, uh, washes and then dries. So simple stories that are appropriate to the culture and to the language. An important and very successful enterprise is how to build toys with, uh, uh, with uh, stuff that is around the, the house. So we use, uh, we use plastic bottles, collars, uh, uh, rags, all sorts of things. And these are example of toys that the mothers eventually build uh, and, 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 and give to the children. So we also have, as in the original Jamaica study, we have a, um, um, a nutrition part. We don't use uh, calories. We have um, uh, micronutrients. These are sprinkles. Uh, so these are little sachets that contain this little powder, which has uh, iron, zinc, vitamin A, and vitamin C. It's one a day. You put it on food. There's no taste, no color, uh, and provides uh, all the, all the um, important nutrients. Uh, this is uh, one of the reasons why this research has been so much fun, is that you have to learn all sorts of skills. Uh, we bought this stuff in India, and we have to import it in Colombia. So we find ourselves importing some sort of powder into Colombia. Um, the, uh, we have to train. Uh, this is a picture of the uh, training of the mother uh, leaders um, that we do. Uh, for a period of three weeks before they start doing the visits. This is a section. In each town, we train three of them. This is an example of a visit. They're in a house, so, so this is the mother leader. This is the mother. She's got her child, this young child, on her lap. There are the siblings also being involved in the visit. This is the same mother leader in a different uh, environment with a different child in a house. Looking, This is a story card uh, that she's using. Uh, that's, uh, that's yet another one. So how do we evaluate this? We, are implement we have been implementing this intervention. How would you evaluate it? So we identified 96 small towns in, uh, in Colombia in three different geographic areas, and we randomly allocated them into four intervention groups. One that receives only home visits, then home visit plus nutrition, nutrition only in control. Total, we have 1,400 children that at the age, uh, at, at baseline in January 2010, they were between, 20, between 12 and 24 months. And this intervention has been going on for 18 months. And then we measure. That's a child being, we're measuring height in this particular case. But we measure an awful lot of stuff. Uh, and that's probably one of the most expensive uh, parts of our study. We measure motor and cognitive development in children through the Bailey's test. We measure the socio-emotional development. We measure language development, nutritional status, height, weight, hemoglobin, hemoglobin and morbidity, food intakes, childcare and, uh, arrangements, and time use. We have a mother interview where we collect lots of information, both socioeconomic standard variables, but also uh, aversion, aversion to inequality and to risk, depression, knowledge and parenting, parenting practices and the home environment, and so on and so forth. So we have hours and hours of interviews that we've been developing. And then we have information on the mother leader, general characteristics. We have the logs of the visits. We have information collected by the supervisors on observing the quality of the visit. And we have been running some focus groups 
to get some more uh, qualitative uh, information. So where do we stand? We're almost finished with the follow-up data. So the intervention is now finished. We are collecting the data in the 96 surveys. We are in the middle of it. We should be done by end of the month or early December, I believe. So we'll know the results in the, in the next few months. And uh, we already have analyzed the baseline survey. So we know how these children were at baseline. Now, the one surprising thing is these are, again, an index of social development. And again, they're normalized. So it's 100 is about normal. And here I plot. So our, our children, as I said, at the beginning of the intervention were between 12 and 24 months. So at 12 months, they were not in a bad shape. This is uh, cognitive development. This is language development. But then you can see that, you know, as you look at older and older children, they're, start, they're starting to accumulate delays. And so that's the, our challenge is, can we bring this line up? Can we make up for this? Can we avoid this, this dropping off? And that's the challenge. And we will soon know whether this, uh, this has been a success or not. And now, honestly, I don't know. I mean, we have, uh, I could tell you lots of anecdotes, but that's not how science is made. We need to collect the data, and we need to show whether we, what we've done is, has been effective or not. Now, if we do have an impact, we know that this can be scaled up at a national level. One temptation that we resisted was to put lots of resources, uh, money, into this thing. We wanted to build something that could be replicated. To us, and the intervention cost about $500 per child per year. Now, this is partly because uh, lo uh, there's a large cost of supervision, which when you go to scale, you can have economies of scale. We are, at the moment, we are in each town, three mother leaders, about 15 children. Probably a supervisor can deal with more than that, with a, maybe 10, 15 mother leaders rather than three. And so you can economize on the supervision cost. We calculated that we can run this thing a scale with maybe three, $400 per child per year. This is affordable. In a country like Colombia, a middle-income country is affordable. And it's, indeed, it's the cost of some of the interventions that they already running. So if we do have an impact, uh, we, we can go to the government and say, hey, this is something you can do, and this is going to have an impact. And we will also be able to use, uh, the reason why we've been measuring so much is that we, we, we want to be able to um, uh, model what's happening. Why, if we do have an impact, wh where does this impact come from? Is the attitude of the mother that changes? Is what she does with the child? Is the involvement of the fathers? Whatever. We want to know that. So the future agenda, this is my last slide. slide. We're now building new interventions in other parts of the world. We are running a small pilot in uh, the urban slums of uh, Sambalpur, which is a city in Odisha in India, which has been financed by generous UCL alumnus. And we are building on that pilot to uh, have a really large pro uh, project in uh, rural Odisha, again in India, um, where we applied for a very large grant, uh, which we, we might be able to get. In both cases, the visits will be delivered by local community organizers working with a large microfinance institution. Once again, the idea we have is that we want to involve community, uh, people living in, in the community, human resources available in the community, so that not only um, you deliver an effective intervention cheaply, but also uh, the community themselves uh, take ownership 
of, the, of this type of interventions. In the second case, in the case of the large pilot, we'll also pilot a group rather than individual people, which is another interesting way to save money. Um, so far, we've been working with children up to the age of three. In the future, we are thinking of, uh, of working with uh, other interventions up to the age of five, but that's, that's for the future. And finally, let me conclude by saying, in all this measurement, is really important. And as a scientific community, I think there is a, still a, an enormous amount of work that need, needs to be done in terms of uh, building measure, measurement tools that can be effectively used to assess the um, effectiveness of our interventions. Thank you very much. The randomization, was that done at the village level? Sorry? At the village level, yes. You randomized at the village level. Yeah. How do you motivate the control villages, those uh, parents, the parents and the children in the control villages, how do you motivate them to go through a very extensive, you have a lot of different exams that you put them through to look at many different aspects. How do you prevent them from becoming attrition? We have been uh, collaborating with the welfare program that, uh, to which they all associated, because even in the controlled villages, the welfare program, the Families in Action program is operating, and we've been working with the officials of the program. So the, uh, the, we, didn't have, we haven't had much problems in the controlled village in terms of uh, uh, willingness to be interviewed and the like. Of course, they don't know that we are doing the same thing in other, uh, different things in other villages. Running, and um, how do you interact with the family welfare institutions in Colombia? That's a very good question. Um, I don't have an hour to answer. I could take an hour to answer that question, but uh, let's put it this way: the uh, the interaction with the Families in Action program has been extremely nice. Uh, they've been uh, very collaborative. Uh, they helped us with the logistics because they uh, give us the list of mother leaders, they help us to contact them, and they kind of uh, kept uh, the 96 villages uh, alone, so they're not doing anything else. Because they themselves are trying different things, but they're doing it in different other parts. We're also starting to, uh, there is a new government since last year in Colombia, and we've been talking to the new government about uh, what they want to do about child development, but... Uh, and they're doing a bunch of things, but uh, we haven't been coordinating much with them. Hi, in your photograph, you showed a mother leader with a child, and it looked like the interaction was directly between the mother leader and the child. And I wondered how much you empowered the mothers themselves to learn the skills and do the stimulation and the interaction themselves and how much the focus is around the session and um, the interaction between the mother leader and the children? That's, that's a very good question and probably Sally will be able to answer much better than I uh, can, but uh, there is an emphasis in the curriculum. We try to train the mother leader to uh, put emphasis interaction with the mother herself 
because the mother has an important role to play. After all, after that hour, is the mother who's going to be with the child. So we do try to uh, stress to the mother leader that she has to encourage the mother to participate. And actually, not just the mother, but possibly other family members. Um, here, the, the, this, is a, this is a good environment. So this is the mother holding the child in her lap. And so the mother leader is interacting with both of them. And the older siblings are also participating, which is nice. But it is a concern that occasionally, you know, the, the mother leader takes um, too much of a role. But. Well, ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of all of you, and I thank Professor Atanasio for a valuable and fascinating lecture. Thank you very much.